Recording first. Live on Facebook. Here we go. <clears throat> this is such a handy thing to be able to do it like this. It's a lot of potential, isn't there? Yeah. to set up. <clears throat> All right. Seems to think it's it's live. Yeah, I think it's about to go for it. As far as I know, it's underway. Yep. We're I think good. we're in. Good. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Brojo. Ask Brojo anything. And um, streaming live here now. And of course, the recordings will be available for everyone later. Exclusive to gold members for the live stream. And of course, we're going to prioritize our gold members questions as well and then we get to other ones if there's time so <coughs> that's better uh, so we've got two questions today we've got one about feeling inappropriate talking to strangers and then we've got another one about talking to people who are on the autism or asperger's spectrum or people with a similar kind of nature so I don't know where we're going to go with these ones, but we'll try and keep it short, 10, 15 minutes each, and uh, see how much wisdom we can impart in that time. So Mike, let's start with the first one. I'll read it out, and then we'll jump into it, eh? Sounds good. All right, so this one's actually from a little while ago. We had a challenge in January um, around meeting strangers, and it was a difficult challenge. And here's one of the struggles that one of our members had. So he says, I'm having a hard time with the challenge. Saying hi to random people is no problem, but actually having a real conversation with strangers is really hard. Uh, I keep going to social events alone, hyping myself up to socialize and meet new people, but I just can't get over the hurdle, end up beating myself up over it the entire evening and the day after. He goes on to say, I was bullied a lot when I was young. They always told me I didn't belong. I think that's still a voice in my head. You don't belong in this person's space. You'll only be a nuisance. Maybe it'd be good to try and break into the smaller challenges, but I can't really figure out the right steps. What kind of advice or tips do you guys have? <clears throat> so this is a pretty common one. The idea of being an inconvenience, being inappropriate, worrying that uh, you're going to somehow hurt or upset people just by trying to talk to them. Mike, you want to have first crack at this one? Absolutely. Uh, I think this was one of the 30 day challenges that I ran and it's one of my favorites actually. Uh, those of you who know a bit about my history know that I had a lot of social anxiety growing up and it's something that I only began really effectively tackling head on um, within the last 10 years. And I can absolutely relate to what he's talking about here in terms of that inner voice that creates all kinds of anxiety and self-doubt, the not good enough story. I like to call it the inner bully 
because it's relentless and it just seems to want to trash you and give you all of the uh, evidence it can that you're going to fail in this situation. Now, in, in this particular scenario, there are several different things we could break it into. Uh, so, like, I, I can think of at least six or seven different areas we could spend hours on each of them. There are a couple, though, that really surface uh, in his questions specifically. One is how to deal with that inner bully and how to move forward effectively in, in conversation practice. And the other, I think, was specific to his challenges with conversation. As he said, he's, he's comfortable um, saying hi to people, very lightweight things, probably okay, saying hello to a barista or having a sales transaction. But when conversations happen, things tend to go off the rails. I think I'm gonna start with that one because there's a, a very stark realization I had to face in my, um, in my own self-development regarding social anxiety. And that was that when you get stressed, when you let your thoughts uh, get out of control, when you start trying to predict what's gonna happen in the conversation, when you get attached to the outcome, all of these things generate stress, which means cortisol, which means you feel sweaty palms, you feel anxious, you feel pretty terrible, really, completely shit. And aside from making it harder on yourself unnecessarily, there is a huge side effect of this that we don't often talk about, which is cortisol is designed to keep you alive. It's, it's a function of your reptilian brain. So when your reptilian brain thinks your life is in danger, it thinks there's some, some kind of threat. It can't identify exactly what it is, but you are sweating and panicking. It's, something seems terribly threatening here. It shuts down your ability to think. It shuts down your frontal lobe because your frontal lobe is very, very slow. And this was how we developed as humans. Your, your ability to think rationally is awesome. Your ability to have deep conversations is awesome. Your ability to sit on a hilltop and imagine going to the moon is awesome. But it's not great when it, your brain's trying to keep you alive from an immediate threat that's right in front of you. So that whole part of your brain gets axed. And if you wanna know why it's so hard to have conversations when you're feeling stressed, that's why. So for me, I really needed to address that stress first. There was no way for me to develop conversational skills or ease of conversation or even begin tackling the, you know, letting go of outcomes and, and what do I, how do I just say one word and then let her respond? And I was way too anxious. I, had, I needed to deal with that anxiety first. And, and what I'd suggest is that for, for any of you that find conversations difficult, step back and look at the sources of stress that you're experiencing. Your goal is to minimize those. And uh, I'll get into a little bit of detail on that later, but I'd like to check in with you, bud, and see what your thoughts on this are. Yeah, well, carrying on in the same line of thinking is there's a kind of broader topic that I think where most people struggle with socializing is simply because they're not enjoying it. In other words, they're stressed <clears throat> and they're anxious. And they'll often find that if they're hanging out with friends or family or people they feel comfortable with, 
they're fine with conversation. This isn't a skill set problem. They know what to say and how to say. They don't even need to think. They just naturally converse. But when they get into certain situations, the the frame changes. This goes from fun socializing to hard work, challenge, mission, threat, difficulty. So somehow, and this you know, this guy has identified possible triggers from childhood bullying and things like that. I think a lot of people have similar backstory. When he goes into socializing, he's going to war. He's not going to have fun and meet people and connect. He's going to try and survive a high threat situation. And of course, every time, <clears throat> every time he backs out of that, he actually confirms it. This is how things like agoraphobia work. You know, fear of leaving your house is your brain will perceive anything you run away from as dangerous, even if it's not. It takes you running away as evidence of danger. So if you go to a social situation and then you leave before talking to anyone because you're too scared to, your brain will register that as evidence that people are dangerous to talk to. So you're actually making it worse. So one of the key elements, there is a bit of a push here required where if nothing else, you need to make sure you leave the situation with confirmation that nothing dangerous or bad happened. One, one of the ways of doing that is just because you can't talk doesn't mean leave the situation. It's important that by the time you go home at the end of night, you register clearly, look, nothing bad happened, even though I didn't talk to anybody. Even if you sit in the corner nursing the same beer for an hour and then go, okay, that's enough. I'll go home now rather than running away because the running away compounds the effect. What I also get from this is that the stress is self-generated. This guy's like most guys, I think, put a lot of pressure on himself to succeed, a lot of pressure on himself to do well, to have a good conversation. And that pressure is actually where the stress that prevents his conversational ability is coming from. So he's shooting himself in the foot with his own goals. One of the ways that uh, I helped counter that for myself when I realized that this was happening is that I took all the pressure off actually having to do well. And my goal was simply to show up and stay there for as long as I could handle with no pressure to actually do anything. Now, if I felt like doing something I could, but I didn't have to. Ironically, when I didn't have to anymore, I was more likely to. Because now it's just a free choice. I'm just here and I can do more if I want to, but I don't have to stay. If I'm like, okay, I have to talk to five people and it has to go well, I'm not going to talk to anyone. I'm going to end up panicking and running home and then I'm going to confirm that it's dangerous. So that's I, my first take. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. The, uh, the approach that I found most effective in directly addressing my anxiety was simply to pull back a bit on what I was trying to do. All that anxiety is being generated in, in my head, which means that if I'm setting the bar too high, I've never done pole vaulting, okay? But I imagine the higher that bar is, the more anxious I'm going to feel just thinking about it. That is a high bar. How the heck am I going to get over that bar, right? Lower that bar enough. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. That feels all right. I don't think I'm going to die. You know, I'll probably hit it and I'll probably fall on my face on the mat, but I'm not going to get hurt. And your goal is to, is to find a place where that bar feels safe enough. And then gradually raise it from there as your confidence naturally develops. So the way I approached it was I'd go out to practice social skills and challenge myself. And if I felt too anxious today, I'd pull back a little bit. 
uh, hey, I really want to talk to that girl across the cafe. She seems really nice and she looks like she's reading something interesting. I feel way, way too anxious to do that. All right, who can I talk to that I feel less anxious about? This guy next to me, he seems nice. Those baristas, oh, I've met her before. That seems fine. I can walk down the street and make eye contact with people. There's all sorts of other things I can do that feel way safer. And what I find is that when I pull back a little bit on what I'm demanding of myself and show my brain that it is safe and that I'm not in some kind of imminent mortal threat, I, I can see that confidence grow very quickly. Literally five to 10 minutes later, I'll feel no anxiety going up and saying hi to that girl. But as long as I'm pushing myself there, as long as I'm holding on to this kind of win-loss, very, very high bar mentality, like I've got to clear that pole vault jump on the first try, even though I'm totally inexperienced and anxious about this, you're, you're creating an enormously stressful and difficult situation for yourself for no reason. And it becomes, becomes uh, really the least fun thing you can think of doing. If you want to develop something in your life to embrace it, you actually have to create it in a way that um, you're going to grow with it. Yeah, I think uh, I can't really say much more than that. It's if it's an actual general goal setting principle. If you go, <clears throat> if you're too scared to jump over the bar, lower the bar. It's as simple as that you should not go home without having cleared the bar, which means the bar needs to be reduced to a height that you can clear. Now, as high as you can go, but no higher. So that you always finish on a win, even if that win was no better than yesterday, at least it's amazing the significant difference between zero and one. If again, like today, the best I can do is just look at that girl, smile and wave. That's all I got in me today. Talking to her is just like Everest. I can't do it. Then at least do that rather than like, I can't do the talking to her, so I can't do anything. Which just creates a sense like there's nothing good that ever happens when I go out. Whereas you get to control what happens when you go out. You set the bar based on your current mood, even if you can't do what you did yesterday or you can't do what your friends are doing or whatever, it doesn't matter. You set that bar and then you move it up from there. And like Mike said, I've had a similar experience. When I take the pressure off myself and reduce the bar, a few attempts at that, I realize, hey, nothing bad's happening. And the fear goes away a little bit and I can raise the bar right there in that same event. Otherwise, maybe I'll do it tomorrow or the day after or whatever. There's, there's one final comment I'd like to add to this, which, which dovetails in beautifully with what you just shared, Dan, is um, that inner bully. So for me, I had all sorts of different theories on what the bully was, what the not good enough story was, what it's trying to accomplish in my head. And it felt like this piece of my brain that was just sabotaging everything. I now have a different perspective on that, which has just recently begun forming, that that inner bully in your head is probably more likely the voice of your own values. It's very harsh uh, because it, it, it doesn't want to compromise your sense of values, your sense of integrity, your sense of being courageous, your sense of being able to connect socially. Those are important enough the part of your brain that it's taking a zero tolerance approach to trying to get you out there to develop that skill, to develop a comfort 
with those situations. And it feels very harsh and very aggressive and very unforgiving. It was, it was actually a, a very difficult situation for me to, to deal with that voice in my head that's saying, you suck at this and you're never going to get better and, and uh, very harsh. But that has changed. Now, what changed for me was as I lowered that bar to a level that I could win at and progressively every day went back to the field and kept doing my pole vaulting and kept trying to increase the difficulty, I came back with that win day after day after day, a little bit better. Very quickly, I noticed two things. One is I'm becoming enthusiastic about the practice of going out and socializing, which before just left me in a panic just thinking about it. Now it's like, oh, that's, that's exciting. Something's going to happen today. I don't know what. That's fun. That was a huge mindset shift. And I noticed that at the same time that happened, the bully started to pull back in my head and kind of just observe the situation. And then it would applaud good efforts. That's essentially what showed me that this was intending to be a helpful part of my own psychology. It was trying to get me to take those steps. If it had to push me hard, it was going to push me hard. But as long as I lived authentically and pursued doing what was in best alignment with my values, uh, I, I couldn't lose. I couldn't lose. It didn't matter how slow the progress was. It just mattered that I was making progress. And very quickly, I could look in the mirror and feel really good about myself. What I'd suggest here is that for, for all of us, there's this, this, you know, not good enough story problem that exists at some level. For some of us, it's a very loud voice. And if you can make that voice your friend and use it as a guide towards what you should be working on a little bit at a time, day by day, starting with a low bar, raising a little bit at a time, Check in, check in with that voice and see what happens. See if it becomes basically your, your cheerleader in life. It was a pretty interesting experience for me to watch that transformation happen. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's, it's trying to push you, but it will get encouraging once you get on track and once it starts seeing some results. The final thought I have on it is what I call the doctor's lollipop. <clears throat> there's a reason that doctors give you a lollipop when you're a little kid after you've been and got your vaccination shots. It's so that your final memory of going to the doctor is an emotionally uplifting one. You remember the doctor for the lollies more than you remember anything else. There's a recency bias. We remember the last thing that happened more than anything else, especially if it's an emotional high. So if you're doing a difficult challenge, make sure you finish with a lollipop. Make sure it always ends with an emotional reward which you need to design to suit yourself. Something fun, something that you do at the end of anything difficult so that your final memory of it was a pleasant one. Right now, this guy's final memory of every social event is him running away in humiliation. No wonder he doesn't want to go back. Now, if his final memory is rewarding himself with his favorite bit of sushi for putting himself out there, or even better, something social, like he hands a note to a girl that gives her a compliment and he likes that because it feels good. Whatever it is, something he always saves to the end so that his final memory is a lollipop. You do that and you'll start to change your perspective of socializing, especially when you combine it with what Mike's talking about, about lowering, lowering the bar so that you're basically always succeeding in your goal while constantly growing.
Awesome. Absolutely <clears throat> agree. Should we move on to the next question? I think we should. Yep. I can read this one out. So this one, particularly interesting. It's quite a common problem for many of us, I think. Uh, the question is, how do you deal with people or manage people, particularly in a workplace situation, maybe you have some family members or friends who are somewhere on the autistic spectrum? Now, those of you who uh, know the autistic spectrum at all understand that there are extremes and then there are uh, very mild forms of autistic type sensibilities. There is actually a condition known as Asperger's syndrome which which I have personal experience with in my life and which uh, my mother, few people that I know, it, it's characterized by uh, a very black and white view of the world, a, uh, a lot of perfectionism as a result of that, possibly a little bit of difficulty dealing with emotions, a little bit of additional effort in understanding emotions, and therefore in connecting with and interacting with people. Um, if you can think of what autism is like full on and then dilute that down to 10%, that's Asperger's syndrome. And you probably know a lot of people like this. Uh, you may even have some on your team, your boss, an employee, a workmate. And it, it, this is a great question because this is such a common problem these days, particularly for those of us that work in technology or engineering jobs. Um, which tend to which tend to attract these sort of very singularly focused type of mindsets. Um, how do you manage these types of situations well and effectively? Dan, do you have any experience with this personally? Uh, yeah, I remember actually when I was in corrections <clears throat> uh, as a probation officer, I remember the first time I got a client who had Asperger's and um, they were quite severe, not like severe as in what people think of with severe autism, like screaming and stimming and playing with light switches, that kind of thing. But like the black and white thing, if I used any sort of vague talk, colloquialisms or cliches or anything like that, he would take it very literally, you know, and if I said something vaguely, he wouldn't understand. So if I said, oh, I'll see you sometime tomorrow afternoon, he would never show up because there is no sometime tomorrow afternoon. If I said 3 p.m., he'd show up at 3 p.m. There was these little things like this. And through him and others, I started to learn about the challenges that these people have socially. I also started to learn about their strengths. For a start, in my experience, people on the spectrum are far more tolerant of direct and brutal honesty than most people are, both giving and receiving. Uh, my, my book editor uh, is actually on the spectrum and uh, she is ruthless with me, which is exactly what I need to edit my book and to work on my philosophical ideas. But better than that even is I can be ruthless with her and I never have to worry about offending her. She's always just grateful to be knowing exactly what's going on in my mind directly and honestly. I never get an offended reaction from somebody who's on the spectrum when I'm directly honest with them, as opposed to people who aren't who you know, want you to sugarcoat things. So there's a strengths and weaknesses thing that you can play with here. Uh, one of the things, as Mike identifies, there are certain industries that are attractive to people who are obsessive and intelligent and singularly focused and like order. Things like engineering and technology, uh, you're going to get an overrepresentation of people on the spectrum. 
Whereas things like creative art or teaching, you're going to get almost no one. So that's my experience with it. Uh, I mean, I've worked with lots of guys with it and I've actually coached quite a few on how to socialize and there's absolutely no barrier to them socializing. It's just people need to work with them and they need to know their own kind of foibles. Um, what this guy raises in the question is some of the difficulties if you're having a meeting with them, for example, and a guy just starts going off on a tangent, very detailed tangent about a very specific point that doesn't actually need to be discussed. So my first piece of advice is these are the people you do not need to worry about offending with interrupting. You can say, look, I need to stop you there because we're getting off track and they're not going to cry about it. Actually, what I've found in my experience is people who struggle socially in general, whether it's Asperger's or anything else, they really appreciate leadership and structure. You know, some people get away on a rant, even someone who's just say an introvert who's socially insecure, who's been put in the spotlight position might start rambling on and on because they just don't know when to stop. They don't know when the right time is. And if someone goes, okay, that's, that's where you stop. They get a great sense of relief. Like, okay, good. Somebody's in control here. I'm not just going to run off the edge of the cliff. I've got a few more things, but I'll hand it back over to you, Mike. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is such a great area. And, and I have to agree. Some of my favorite people to coach in social skills are somewhere on the aspergic spectrum. And it's because there's this incredible enthusiasm once it starts to come together and this tenacity to just pursue ruthlessly uh, their personal goals. And that is a huge, huge strength. I think it's interesting. It's almost like the, the dial for emotional sensitivity is, is low. And as a result, they don't really feel their own emotions as intensely either. Fear, anxiety are a little bit, they, they come out differently. And once they learn what's exciting about a particular challenge, it, it's explosively exciting. The fear doesn't really play a role. So this is why probably most of our best scientists and engineers in history have been able to just work ridiculous hours and create incredible things is, is that, that characteristic. <clears throat> now, another thing I notice about the aspergic character mindset is this very, very intense idea of everything is a pass or fail situation. The reason that matters, if you're working with someone on a team or if you've got a friend or family member uh, or boss or employee who's aspergic, is understanding that they don't understand gray. They don't understand shades of gray. They only understand black and white. And it's, it's a struggle to accept the in-betweens and figure out how to quantify it. They want a yes or a no. They want a, you did a good job or you did not do a good job. They don't, they don't like halfway things. So one, uh, one aspect of this is that if you are unclear in your uh, requirements for a project, your directives, it is gonna create no end of stress and confusion and frustration for this person and ultimately for, for the team and the company and yourself because they, they never know when they've won. If you don't have a clear goal established, uh, they have nothing to chase and pursue diligently, right? They're just kind of like running through the forest, hit it smacking into trees, as we all do with poor goals. But most of us just hang back. When you've got someone who's aspergic, that desire to really pursue that goal, but not knowing what that goal is, is, is highly stressful. 
And what you can do, if you're aware of that, you can set very, very clear structure, very clear guidelines, very clear requirements, and make it very clear to them when they're on track and when they've gone off track. And as Dan's pointed out several times, you really, that directness and that honesty, it'll sound almost brutal in your head, like, hey, this is not the right direction. You don't need to water it down. Watering it down actually is unhelpful in a conversation with someone who's aspergic. It's much better to just say, hey, I think we could go this way and hit much more effectively. You'll know straight away if they're on board. They'll tell you straight away if they're on board because they don't mince words either. Yeah, honestly, I love that about them. You know, there's a kind of a benchmark here. If you can clearly communicate with someone who's on the spectrum, then you can clearly communicate with anyone. So it's a, it's a great uh, environment to develop your social skills because if they can't understand you, then odds are other people can't either. It means you're vague and indecisive and unsure. It means you expect things without speaking them. You have like covert contracts with people. You can't get away with that with someone with Asperger's because they're just going to run with what they know and it'll be very clear. They're not going to hang around or guess or assume on your behalf like other people will. That's one of the things I've found about having, uh, you know, having an editor who's on the spectrum is as she goes through my book, she tears it to pieces. If anything is not relevant to the point, if anything is waffling, if anything doesn't come to a conclusion and she's right. I'm reading through it. I'm like, that's just pointless noise. Why is that in there? I like the sound of it. It makes me feel good to write it, but she's just called it out for what it is, which is waffling gray bullshit. Mm. One of the things that you learn through working with somebody who's on the spectrum that actually is applicable to any relationship is setting up boundaries and understandings. How do you want to interact with each other? How can you understand each other? Rather than going, shit, is this person on the spectrum? Do I need to follow the seven principles of talking to someone who's autistic or anything? Just ask them, like, what do you need from me for us to communicate clearly? Because here's what I need from you. And come to an agreement. And this is a great practice. First, you do it with someone like this who's actually going to appreciate you for it and not get all huffy that, you know, that you're not going to guess what's in their head because they don't understand that whole concept anyway. But it'll help you set up for later on for somebody who's not on the spectrum and has a lot of covert expectations and wants people to just guess what they're thinking. You'll be able to call them out and say, no, that's not how I do things. I've learned from people on the spectrum, we've got to have a clear understanding. We've got to have black and white deliverables and results. And even in a personal relationship, mm. when I talk like this, it means I feel that. So now, you know, mm. I just, I just saw a latest study that came out. I might post the link below the recording. Um, that's basically showing that facial expressions are a hugely inaccurate um, indicator of what's going on inside somebody. Basically, they're faked a lot of the time or they're misrepresentative. So for for somebody on the spectrum, they already know that because facial expressions are a fucking mystery to them. They often misread them. You know, they'll often say things that are inappropriate or seem to be offensive and they don't seem to realize it and so on because the face is kind of a mystery for them and they don't like looking into faces as much as others anyway. But the funny thing is, they're right. Faces cannot be trusted. Facial expressions are not largely accurate uh, when it comes to what people are really thinking. So you have to actually tell people. You might think, hey, it shows what I want. And then you get disappointed at people for not delivering. 
when actually no you didn't show what you want you didn't say it out loud in black and white um just coming back to the the original question what i'd suggest yeah he says something like um you know how do i um how do i manage that tendency they have to go off track you know i want a succinct answer in one sentence not a 10 minute explanation tell him that say i want a one sentence answer all right when they start going off on track goes look this is too much information for me i just want to know the answer to this question here it is what's the answer to that they will appreciate you for doing that because they're running like a a train with no tracks here they're just like fuck i'll just keep talking until i hit the mark because i have no idea what's going on give them a mark to hit yeah yeah and, and it, <laughs> i gotta add something to this here there's some fascinating brain science going on right now regarding full-on autistic uh, people who can't even communicate, basically sit and shake, that a big aspect of the problem that they're experiencing is that everything, every sensation, every sound, every noise, every uh, gust of wind, every bit of light, everything has maximum significance. The brain can't filter that many points of data that are all significance level 100. Whereas we know how to ignore shit all the time. We ignore most of what happens around us and figure out which part is relevant for us. Um, someone who's fully autistic can't quite do that. So it feels like the world is screaming at them and blinding them and hurting them all constantly at, you know, like they're on fire. Now someone who's aspergic has that to a, a lighter degree. They're functional, but, um, but that tendency is still there. And what that means is that when you're in a business meeting and you ask someone who's aspergic, um, hey, can you explain your logic behind this situation? Or can you tell us where this feature is at? Whatever question you ask, they will give you every piece of information about it they can. Because to them, all of those bits of information are crucial for you to know. They can't filter it. So a few ways you can manage that, as Dan said, one is help them narrow it down. Say, hey, I've got 60 seconds. I need an answer. Is this ready? What date will it be ready? Are there any big barriers to you getting this feature done on time? Another thing you can do is give them that list of questions well in advance of the meeting, preferably the day before or that morning, um, so that they've got several hours to actually think about what are the key things they need to know in my three-minute summary of where the project is at. And it will make their life a lot easier, a lot less stressful. They'll have a chance to go through and identify those important things. It'll make your life a lot easier and you'll get something, something much more valuable out of that. Dan, I've got one more thing I'd actually like to add on this topic. Did you want to share anything else on your mind right now? Just to confirm that. And just as I hear you speak, just emphasizing the importance of understanding that this is just basic leadership. This is what you should be doing with everybody. If you want people to, you know, one of the reasons that people struggle to, to communicate with others on the, on the spectrum is because they're actually very indirect and they're shy and cowardly about what they want. You can't get away with that with someone who's on the spectrum. They can't guess what you want. So if you can actually work with someone like that, you're practicing for everybody you know what, I'm going to talk to all my, I'll, I'll prepare all my staff with questions before the meeting. I'll give them all like, this is exactly what I want and what I don't want. So they never have to guess what's on my mind. In fact, I'll do that with my partner too. 
she'll know exactly what I want and don't want. So she never has to guess. They don't need to be on the spectrum for you to do this. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's, what is it? Uh, I think it's attributed to Einstein. I don't know if he actually said it though, which is uh, if you can't explain something simply, then you don't really understand it. Well, the people on the spectrum are a litmus test for that. If you can't explain something in black and white, then you need to stop and go, what do I really want here? I need to be able to explain in black and white to even be sure of myself. If you're coming in with uncertainty, they've got no chance. So get your shit sorted and then give it to them. That's the only point I wanted to make. Yeah, that's great. I think that's actually Richard Feynman, by the way, who's, who's famous as a professor because, uh, yeah, he encouraged people that if you can explain it to a five-year-old, then you understand it pretty well. <laughs> Until then, you know, you're, you're not ready. Yeah, so we've, we've, we've talked a lot about um, how to use the strengths of someone who's a bit aspergic, how to work around some of the ways that they look at the world and use them to your advantage in a project. Um, that idea of structure, setting expectations, being very direct with your honesty, um, understanding their pass-fail mentality and helping them understand what a win looks like so they can aim for it. Um, there's one other area I'd like to touch on, and that is the challenge that people who are aspergic tend to have with understanding emotions. The reason I've come across this a number of times, I've been uh, a managing consultant for 25 years, all in tech with teams up to 80 people. I've worked with a lot of people somewhere on the spectrum, some quite severe, but brilliant, but you, you put them in a closet and have them do their brilliant thing. They didn't know how to deal with people. And other, others which were able to work in team environments much more effectively, but needed a bit of help. And one of the things I would see on a recurring basis is that if there was a situation that clearly involved emotion, it helped if I assisted the aspergic uh, people in understanding what was going on. It was a little funny in the way it sounds, but uh, I can give a few examples. One is if someone is frustrated, helping this person understand that they're just frustrated, here's what they're looking for. They're not mad at you, they're just anxious about the situation and stressed and here's what we can do to help. And so the problem was, when someone who's aspergic sees emotion played out in some kind of obvious way, it's, it's just very loud noise to them. It's difficult for them to identify what is the target and what is the cause of this emotion, and therefore they don't know how to deal with it. If you can point that out yeah, and help them get a clear understanding of what it is they're seeing, it makes them far more effectively able to solve the problem. Otherwise, it just keeps recurring again and again and again. I've even seen cases where someone would start laughing in a meeting or crack a joke or something. And someone in the room, again on the spectrum, might immediately just ah, start laughing because they, 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 they thought they were supposed to, but they didn't know what the joke was or they didn't get the joke, and, but they didn't want to be left out. Or in the worst cases, they'd actually think they were being laughed at. Just no understanding of what was going on. And so that there's that confusion of, I, I don't know what's happening. It seemed big. Ah, and then this, this sudden anxiety. Now, for someone on the spectrum, and it depends exactly where they are and their personality, there are a lot of variables to this. You'll find everybody you encounter who's on the spectrum is quite different. 
But if you encounter someone with this particular challenge, uh, help them. Help them in situations that make them anxious. Be there for them. Say, hey, I noticed you get stressed when people are laughing and you're not sure why it is or when there's a joke and you don't know what the joke was about. Uh, or if you see someone who's stressed or angry and you don't know what to do about it, come to me. Tell me what you're experiencing. I'll help you figure it out. I understand that that's a challenge. I also understand that you absolutely will rock it once you understand what you're supposed to do in this situation. Um, but I'm here as a resource. All of their panic and stress comes with that feeling of not knowing what to do or how to deal with that situation. Because again, without a goal, without a target, their wheels are just spinning and they're panicking. Um, I'd say that that's actually a very important problem. I've encountered enough times that it deserves to be on the top of your list working with this type of personality. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the crux of it. And my, my final thoughts on this. One of the things is to understand is most people on the spectrum have not been officially diagnosed. They don't even know they really have a thing that's recognizable. They have understood, they understand that they've had a struggle throughout their life socially, um, but they don't really know why or what to call it because they did well in school. That's how I'd put it. Now, if you don't do well at school, you'll get diagnosed with ADHD instantly because all they care about in school is your academic performance. Now, people who are on the spectrum tend to perform quite well academically until they become very disordered. Um, so nobody's checking to see how well they're doing in the playground and how well they're talking to the other kids. That doesn't get diagnosed. They don't get sent to the doctor for that one. So they grow up and they don't really realize that not only do they have a thing, it's a thing that comes with guidance and principles that make it easier to deal with. It's actually a strength, but it has weaknesses and the weaknesses can be overcome, but they don't know that. The point I'm trying to make is if you're, especially if you're a leader, take a risk and actually call it out with the person say, look, I've noticed you do these tendencies and I wonder, have you ever heard of the term Asperger's? Because I'm seeing some things that I associate with that term and I'm wondering if it's familiar to you. Because I've done that with about three or four people now that I've built up a, like, do your research online and figure out what Asperger's actually is. But I've taken a risk a few times and gone like, you know, I think you might have this thing. Just go check out. Here's, look, here's your basic Wikipedia page. Have a read through that. Tell me if it hits any targets for you. And the relief that they get, they're like, oh my God, is that what it is? And they've finally got somewhere to start with this thing. They just thought I was the nerd or I was the lonely kid or I don't know how to talk to people. But I realized, no, no, you've actually just got some tendencies that you haven't been taught how to manage. It's just like somebody uh, who has depression, the amount of people who have depression and don't know it. And they just need someone to go like, here's a list of depression symptoms. Do any of these hit the mark? And they go, fuck, I'm nine out of 10. And you go, yeah, that's why your life sucks. <laughs> you know, like that's why things are so hard for you. People with Asperger's, people even uh, on the autism spectrum for, for other reasons or other variations, they often don't know. And that not knowing leaves them in the dark as to why they feel different to everybody. Once they know, like uh, my editor friend, once she found out, she was somebody I actually brought it up with. Um, she straight away, not only did that reduce half of her anxiety, because she's like, oh, it's just a thing. I'm not this weirdo. Like, it's got a name, and there's a way to deal with it. From there on out, she was able to explain it to people. 
She's like, look, if I ever offend you or if I'm too honest, it's because I'm on the spectrum and you can actually tell me about it. You can challenge me on it. I'll be fine because I won't know when it's happening. You can tell me. And she forms friendships by creating these uh, boundaries and these agreements with people. She lets them know what to expect from her so they don't think she's weird, you know, and it works out well for everybody. Because the guy who sent in the question, he's actually mentioned he might be on the spectrum himself. So the best thing you can do is put everybody else into the clear about it. Look, I've got this thing or I've got this way of interacting that some people find difficult or unusual. And once you know about it, you can call me out on it. You can talk to me about it. There won't be a problem anymore. You'll know why I don't react well to that or why I don't understand this or why I'm suddenly really blunt and honest. Once you understand, you won't be offended or put off by it and you're allowed to talk to me about it. You set that up. And then it turns out you really don't need to do anything about Asperger's because once everybody understands what's going on, they can adapt and adjust to it and connect with you just fine. Fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think uh, at the very beginning of the discussion, Dan, you pointed something out that a lot of people miss is that if you have someone Aspergic in your world, in your workplace, in your circle, understand that they have incredible strengths to bring to the project. Your goal is not to manage them into a corner. Your goal is to help bring those strengths out, which will be the most fulfilling thing for you, for your team, for your company, for your project, every aspect, and for, of course for that, that person as well. So it's very much worth learning these skills. Absolutely. I reckon we should probably wrap it up there. Yeah, that's a good place to wrap it up. I see uh, we've got quite a few questions in the queue coming up. We're doing about two a week right now. And uh, keep them coming. There's some really exciting questions coming forward. And thanks so much for those of you that, that sent this week's questions through. Definitely. And uh, we'll just tackle them as they come up, covering a range of issues. We'll rant and we'll give our opinions and advice. And you can do what you wish with that. Thank you all. See you all next time. See you soon. Cheers.